sixth Sunday of Epiphany, and we're going to be going to Israel, to Palestine, meeting Jesus there and listening to a very famous sermon and seeing how it might touch our hearts. We're glad that you're here. The order of service is going to be projected for you. Everything will be projected. And you know, early uh, in, in when Jesus was just getting started, the disciples, the people would ask about him, and they said, well, you want to know about Jesus? you got to come and see. Come and see, Jesus. And our opening hymn will be that Come and See song. We'll be singing along with Carl, and we'll have the yellow parts will be our response within that opening hymn. If it's comfortable for you, I'd invite you to stand. Gathered in God's house, we worship in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Raise our voices in song. Come and see. Have mercy on us.
and the first verse is the challenge verse. So sing along. Uya imose tina matemwari. Gracious God, we have come down to meet you in this level place. We have come from our homes and our hamlets. We pray that you would now send your Holy Spirit that we might be renewed, refreshed, and empowered to live lives of service and to stand always for love. We pray in the name that is above all others, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I'll turn it over to Mike. first lesson is from the fourth chapter of Luke. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. I've always appreciated the words of uh, the Beatitudes as is found in Luke on the, the Sermon on the Plain. Um, and um, the way that's differentiated from it is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And I always wanted to have a song um, from using that text. And so um, a while back, I wrote one. <clears throat> and that is this today called Blessed. Uh, and I was just reading in a book by a Palestinian Christian man, Elias Shakur. 
talking about the Beatitudes being um, more than just a set of, of words and platitudes and statements, but actually listening to them as prophecy. So with that in mind, here's Blessed from Luke chapter 6. He came down from the mountain to those from many lands. They came and felt the power, received healing from his hands. And he said, Blessed are the poor, for the reign of God is yours. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep, for in your day you will laugh. Blessed, blessed are you. Blessed. But listen, you who are rich and who are full now, for surely the time will come when your comfort will desert you. And listen, you who can laugh, for you will know weeping and grieving of hearts. Listen now. Blessed are you when people hate you and despise you because of my name. May you rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is with God. He came down from the mountain with healing in his hands. And he said, Blessed, Blessed. sat down and wrote a song for us. Thank you, Carl. That was beautiful. I should tell you, Carl's going to sing at the conclusion of this well-crafted, long-winded sermon. <laughs> so you got that to look forward to. And thank you, Mike. Thanks for reading so beautifully that uh, lesson for us. However, wasn't that the same lesson we just had two weeks ago? Anybody paying attention? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Same. What, what's going on with that? Well, that was intentional. We are returning to that first sermon of Jesus given in his home in a synagogue in the small village of Nazareth. We're going to begin there, not spend a lot of time, but we're going to begin there because it sets the tone for his entire ministry that would follow. The overarching themes in that first sermon we are going to see again as we look at his most famous sermon, good news to the poor, release to the captives, 
sight to the blind, the oppressed go free. Yes, revisiting that first sermon of Jesus will provide us with context. And last week, we talked about how important context is. The Bible can only be understood and then applied to our lives if we understand the context in which the stories were written and the words were spoken. So I'm going to invite you to come with me. Let's head down to the Sea of Galilee, down to the shores there. The sea, as you see, is it's a lake, really, Lake Gennesaret. In the northern end of the lake, the Jordan River flows in. It comes out of the Dan Mountains down into the the Sea of Galilee. It provides sweet water to the lake. The water then moves down to the southern end of the lake, and out comes the Jordan River on that side, and it makes its way all the way down to the Dead Sea. On the shores of the Sea of Galilee, we will meet Jesus, and we're going to listen in as he preaches his most famous sermon. But before we hear a portion of that sermon, as recorded in the sixth chapter of Luke's Gospel, we're going to spend a little time looking at the context of the sermon. We're going to do that by looking at the place where it was preached, at the crowd who was there, and at the conventional wisdom of Jesus' day. Are you ready for that? Okay, you're participating today, so we're going to begin... Let's pull up that first verse. We're going to look at the place. Can you read that for me? He came down and stood on a level place. Now you look at that text. It's now that very short little phrase there. He came down and stood on a level place. Anything uh, strike you there about that location? Maybe not. He came down and stood on a level place. You see, we are so removed from this text the culture, and the biblical narrative that we can look at that little phrase and not even see what is right before our eyes. He came down and stood on a level place. You may remember Carl referenced the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus standing in a higher place. Mountaintops were places of revelation. Moses, Mount Sinai. Jesus, Mount Tabor. Mountaintops, you see, reach skyward. They're a little closer to heaven. But here he came down and stood among the people on a level place. You know what that is? That's code language. And it's nearly impossible for us to comprehend that removed some 2,000 years from the context. But eight times in the Old Testament, eight times in the Old Testament, That same word is used, level, a level place. A level place, unlike a mountaintop in the Old Testament, was the place of the corpses. A place of disgrace. A place of suffering and misery and hunger and mourning. And what does Luke tell us? Jesus came down to a level place. Now, 30 years earlier... He came down from heaven on Christmas. He became a fragile, frail human like us. He cried, he grieved, he bled, he experienced pain and betrayal. We cannot understand the sermon that will follow without understanding the level place. And then what about the crowd? What do we know about them? Well, go ahead and read it for me. He came down with them and stood on a level place. 
with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you don't have a map of Israel memorized in your head, this might not mean a lot to you. But understand this. Jesus was in the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee. And the only city of any real consequence there was the Roman town of Tiberias. And Jews were advised to steer clear of Tiberias and any other town that was populated by unclean Gentiles, foreigners. So the translation here is that Jesus was in the middle of nowhere. It was 76 miles to Jerusalem. Tyre was 35 miles away. Sidon was 53 miles away. And I got to tell you, folks, there were no cars. There was no public transportation. People got there. They had to walk. They had to walk to find Jesus in the middle of nowhere. And that's what they did. Looking out at the crowd, I'm not thinking there's too many of us who could walk 53 miles in a day. No, they walked on a level place, and they were desperate, many without work, most without hope, and they had heard somewhere, someone had told them about this miracle worker and this teacher, and so under the hot sun, their paths began to merge until this mass of broken humanity was gathered around Jesus on a level place. And then what happened? Go ahead and read it for me. They had come to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases, those troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all in the crowds were trying to touch him. We are living in pandemic times. I don't need to tell you, you all have masks on. But I want you to see that text, and I want you to imagine just for a moment Imagine that there were, you were now surrounded by thousands of people, not just people. No, they were a pretty pathetic group of people. And they were coughing a lot. And their noses were running. And their bodies were devastated by a whole variety of diseases. What were they? They were walking corpses, suffering in misery. And what were they doing? They're reaching out for you. And they're trying to touch you. And they're pressing in on you. That's what's going on here. The place was a level place, and the crowd could be described as level two. Context, the place, and the crowd. I think you have an understanding of that now, so we'll move to conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom 2,000 years ago would say that if you are suffering, you somehow deserve it. After all, why else would you be suffering? If you are diseased or poor or lonely or lame, then God was obviously punishing you for your sin. You may remember the question asked of Jesus in the ninth chapter of John's gospel. They came up to Jesus, they said, Rabbi, you're great rabbi, tell us, who sinned that this man over here was born blind? Did he sin in the womb? Or was it his parents' sin that doomed him to live like this? There must have been sin somewhere, for he's blind. The conventional wisdom in Jesus' day was quite simple. The righteous were blessed, and the suffering poor were cursed by God. You get what you deserve. Now, compassion, charity, empathy all had a place in the religious life, 
But all too often the self-righteous would pile judgment on on top of what was already human tragedy. You see, suffering could not be random. There's no order there. It had to be related to sinfulness. And if you think back to the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, every time there was rain and a bountiful harvest, what did they take that to mean? God was happy with them. They knew nothing about El Nino or global warming. And what happened when plagues or famines came? They took that as a sign of God's rage or disapproval of how they were living. And if they went to war and they had a victory, it was a vindication from God. But if they were defeated, it was a call for the nation to repent. If some suffering was random, then somehow all control would be lost and everyone would have to live in fear, even the religious people. So what does this all sound like today? This is what it sounds like today. Success begins with Jesus. God wants you to be rich. A prosperity gospel. Good news for the rich and the beautiful and the healthy. Put God first and God will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Follow Jesus and all your troubles will be gone. That's messed up, folks. That's a messed up view of God's judgment. And th- but that view and that self-righteous arrogance is still very much alive today. I think there's a game today, isn't there? Is there a football game or something? I don't know. Whatever. You know, when it's over and somebody won, they're going to come running out, and I hope they say, I'm going to go to Disneyland, Right? But I hope they don't say, I give all the credit to God. God wanted us to win, you know, as if God cared about that game. So let's try to just put it all together. We are at a level place, and you know what that means now. Jesus is surrounded by a pathetic gathering of visibly broken people. And the ever-present judgment of the self-righteous who continued to tell the suffering people that God was angry with them. That's what's going on. Jesus on a level place with level people. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons, right? Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, it doesn't fit with the theology. Why would Jesus heal the sick if sickness was a punishment from God, right? Well, if you study the ministry of Jesus, what you're going to find is that Those who were in the path of the gospel, as you are today, those who were in his path were healed, they were restored, they were forgiven, and their leprosy was gone. So what was going on here? What was Jesus teaching them? What is Jesus teaching us? You see, every time Jesus fed the poor, he was proclaiming loudly that hunger and poverty were not a part of God's plan. It was not a judgment or a prison sentence that came down from heaven on the hungry and the poor. And every time Jesus healed the sick and the dying, he was proclaiming that it was not God's will for people to suffer. Thousands were pressing in on him. He had healed so many. Their bodies were fine now, but in their minds they could still hear it. They could still hear the taunting accusations of the religious people. You don't measure up. You're a sinner. Okay, it's time for the sermon. The Sermon of Jesus, just a little part of it, 
a sermon that stood in opposition to the conventional wisdom of the day. Jesus said, are you ready? Let's do that sermon with him. We'll get him in the right spot here. Jesus said, say it. Do you hear those words any differently now? Imagine how those words sounded to people who had always been told that they were trash, that they were suffering because of their own sin. Sweeter words were never spoken to broken people. They said, we are poor. We find ourselves in a level place, but you're telling us that God still loves us? Wow. We are hungry. But you're telling us that that hunger is not a curse from God? Thank you. We are weeping. We are crying ourselves to sleep at night. But God promises us that the seasons will change and we will laugh again? Thank you, Jesus. Let me translate that for you. The good news for the poor, the blind were given their sight. Jesus set free those who were oppressed by guilt and fear. Jesus was releasing the suffering from the judgment of the religious people. But Jesus didn't stop there. He then reminded those who lived in high places. The rich always live in high places, you know. The high of the city, the Acropolis, the place with a good view. Jesus reminded those who lived in high places that they were still human and they were still vulnerable. And this is what he said. He said, woe. Woe to you. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and you will weep. Whoa. Was it a threat? Was this an ominous threat from Almighty God? Would the rich and self-righteous be punished now in place of the poor and the lame? No, not at all. This was not a threat to the rich. It was an observation, an observation that's as old as the hills. It was a reflection on the human condition. So let's end this time together by making just a couple observations about the human condition. The people who pressed in on Jesus that day by the Sea of Galilee were not exceptional in their suffering. They were suffering, but they were not exceptional in their suffering. The predicament that they found themselves in, it could be attributed to a a wide assortment of causes. Some of them just had bad luck. And we've all known people in our life who have just had bad luck. For others, the suffering they experienced could be due to unclean water or a lack of sanitation or lead poisoning. And without question, there were some who were there who were suffering because of their own misguided decisions. But others, perhaps, were suffering because of the politics, because of the political realities. 
uh, things that were totally out of their control, the oppression of the Romans or the greed of King Herod. But whatever the reason, let's be very clear, the suffering that they experienced was not an exception to the human experience. Rather, it was a clear illustration of the human experience. This is the reality of living in frail human flesh. It is not an unrecognizable story. No, this story that we see 2,000 years old, it's your story and it's mine. This is reality. And this pandemic has forced us to once again face our own mortality and face the fragile nature of our society. The human condition is shared by all, all humans, Jews and Muslims, the people who are oppressed in Russia and the people of the Ukraine. The human condition is shared, and it is not a respecter of time or place or position or wealth. From the royal family in England to your family on Whidbey Island, every family tree is broken. Every marriage is tenuous. Children bring us joy and they also bring us sleepless nights. Neighbors quarrel with one another. Addiction destroys lives. Walls are built around our homes and our cities and our nation. And in the end, you know what happens? Everybody dies. Wealth could not protect Paul Allen from cancer. The rich and the poor all look the same at the funeral home. My friends, don't think that your suffering is unique or exceptional, and don't think for a minute that it is the punishment of God. And if you look around the sanctuary this morning, I don't know what you think you see, but let me tell you what I see. Everyone is insecure in this group. Everyone's plagued by fear, stricken with illness, terrified of losing their homes or their spouse or their car keys realizing that the concept of independence was only an illusion all along. The people who met Jesus on that level place, no, they were not unlike us. No, they were very much like us. They simply didn't have masks on. Jesus describes the human experience as it is. And we should say, too, that Jesus is not saying it's better to be poor. No. He's not saying it's better to be hungry or grief-stricken. None of us should aspire to be poor or hungry or sad. What he is saying is if you are poor or you are hungry or you are lonely or diseased, that God is still with you, not against you. You're not alone. You're not forsaken. And if any religious person ever spews lies in your way, just don't believe them because God desires abundant life for you. But if your life is not currently abundant, it is not the judgment of God that puts you in that position. There may be a dozen different reasons for your predicament, but don't blame God. Woe! Woe to you who are human. For if you're rich now, you're still going to get dementia and die someday. And if you dine lavishly now, the day will come when you'll have no food, or perhaps you'll just have no desire to eat food. And if you're traveling the world now and seeing wonders in far-off lands, the day will come when your world will shrink to the size of a hospital bed in your living room. And if you're laughing now, that's good. 
But you must expect that seasons of grief will follow because they come to all of us. You see, Jesus understood. He understood the human experience. Why? Because Jesus was one. He became one of us. He became human. And living with that frailty, living with that pain, living with that insecurity and fear, standing at graveside, witnessing poverty, Jesus' life and ministry were marked by compassion and empathy for us. Is this good news or bad news? It's a description of reality. And it's a reminder to us that we are all on this journey together and it is hard for everyone. So maybe, maybe we could be a little more compassionate with one another and a little less judgmental. And maybe we could remember that behind every mask is a human story and we are all the same. So if we find our place on a high mountain or if we find ourselves in a level place, Let's stand together, and let's stand for love. Amen? Amen. Stay right there, and Carl's going to sing for us. I stand for love, I stand for peace, I stand for joy and for release, for what is beautiful and true. I stand for hope, I stand for you, I stand for love, I stand for peace, I stand for joy and for release. What is beautiful and true? I stand for hope, I stand for you. You know our world is in great pain. She needs our loving care again. But there are those who fail to see what we have done and what we need. There is a cost for every act And now there is no turning back We burn a bridge, we bang a drum It's time to rise, the time has come To stand for love, to stand for peace To stand for joy and for relief what is beautiful and true to stand for hope to stand for you if you're thinking it's not urgent that we've got more time to care if i'm not the one who'll change things then 
invite you to stand as we lift our hearts to God in prayer. Michael's going to lead us in prayer and Carl will lead us as well. Uh, we have a sung response, hear our cry, O God. We'll sing that right away as we prepare our hearts for prayer. Then after each petition, three sung, uh, we'll return to that. Then Michael lead us in a petition and we'll go back to Carl. Just follow along. I'm making this very hard. <laughs> Let us pray together.
Sarah Lowe, the National.